Matthew chapter 14. All right, everybody have a Bible? Please, I want you to see God's words. These are not my words. These are God's words. These come from the living God. So we've, we're now uh, approaching this. This is about halfway through the book of Matthew. Matthew 28 is the last chapter, of course. Now we're in chapter 14. Hope you're enjoying this study. Well, Matthew has sounded the note of rejection. We saw that basically starting back in chapter 11. So we, we, we saw in uh, chapter, uh, well, the end of chapter 14, that both Jesus and John the Baptist were rejected. In fact, for John, uh, it uh, ended with his, his life being removed. And there's been some sad notes that, that have been struck, and there's going to be some more strad, sad notes struck uh, even, even more frequently as, as this narrative of Matthew progresses. But let me tell you this, uh, often with God, uh, you, you get bad news, but there's often good news that comes with that. There, there, it's not just all doom and gloom. Uh, and so he now lets us see Jesus, who is still at work. Jesus is not dead. Jesus has, has, uh, has he's still God, and he's still, he's still doing amazing things. In fact, some very amazing things we're going to look at today. So Jesus is still at work, he's, and he's even finding acceptance among his own people. What we're going to see is that he Matthew that is relates a number of miracles, including the the miracle of feeding of the five thousand men. Uh, he walked on water, uh, and then he did some healings. So we're going to look at three different uh, sets of miracles, if you will, today that all go together. So despite the rejections we've been seeing, it's still the same Jesus of whom Matthew has been writing about. Jesus doesn't change. In fact, you know Hebrews says. Uh, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so today we want to see that Jesus is Jehovah Jireh. If you're not familiar with that title of, of God, Jehovah Jireh, you see that in your Old Testament. It basically means this, that God will provide. God is the great provider. He's Jehovah Jireh. But by the way, Jehovah and Yahweh are basically meaning the same thing, in case you're wondering. So I'm going to use the term Yahweh today as well. So if you're wondering... Why, why? Well, basically, they're interchangeable, Jehovah and Yahweh. So, God will provide. What, what, what does He provide? And, and, how does, and, and why does He provide? Well, Jesus provides because, as we see in this passage, He has all authority over all of His creation. He has authority over all of His creation. Well, the first part we see here is that King Jesus has authority over food. One of the basic necessities of life, of course. You cannot live without food. And we see that King Jesus has authority over food. Look at verse 13, chapter 14, verse 13. These are the words of the living God. By the way, how's the temperature in here for everyone? Anyone too hot? All right, verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, by the way, the this is pointing back to the previous context that John the Baptist was killed and executed by King Herod. When Jesus heard about that, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. 
and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for them. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Well, that ends the first miracle we see here. So we see that King Jesus has authority over food. The the basic necessities of life, he has total authority and control over them. Now, this is the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels. You'll find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only one. This indicates, the, of course, the vast importance it had for the church for a number of reasons. Uh, in case you didn't notice, uh, even in this passage here, there is great depth in its theology. I hope you know in, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus said that the Old Testament pointed to him. It was all about him. And so we see, we see a number of things, even, even here in the New Testament, these things uh, are, are alluding to some things we see in the Old Testament, and, and they're all looking to Christ, that Christ is God. And so in this miracle, it's reproducing uh, both the, the uh, manna in the wilderness, which you'll see a picture here of sort of what happened in the wilderness. Remember God in... in, in, in <clears throat> In the book of Exodus, God provided for the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. He, he brought down this bread from heaven. Well, Jesus is that bread from heaven. In fact, the companion passage in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will never hunger. You will be satisfied. And that's in the same context as the feeding of the 5,000. So it reproduces the man in the wilderness, but it also reproduces Elijah's miracle where he multiplied loaves in 2 Kings chapter 4. But in Exodus chapter 16, that particular event that took place, God gave the manna to the people. But here, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's becoming the giver of the manna that actually truly satisfies. He is the bread of life. And when we eat of him... We will never hunger. We will be satisfied. So here, Jesus is depicted in this passage both as the new prophet Elijah as well as the new Moses. He is the great prophet. He is the greatest prophet. Well, we have an interesting scene going on here in verses 13 and 14. I've got to ask the question, why did Jesus withdraw? Because it says Jesus withdrew after he heard these things. Well, Jesus, number one, wished to remove himself from a politically tricky situation. It is possible Jesus had heard King Herod was beginning to focus his attention on Jesus, so he withdrew to avoid the kind of treatment that John the Baptist received. By the way, in Luke chapter 9, it tells us the desolate place that is mentioned here in Matthew was at Bethsaida. I've given you a map here on the screen for you. You notice Bethsaida 
was up on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, which actually wasn't a sea, it was technically a lake, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. But notice, uh, he's in an area that is, um, hopefully you can notice this, it's, it's an area that's outside of King Herod's control. So that's why some have said he's, he's kind of just, you know, out of sight, out of mind, getting away from King Herod. And notice in our, in our scripture here, it says the words by himself, you find in verse 13, mean that Jesus wished to spend some time alone with his disciples, and he wanted to prepare them for the terrible events that were soon to come later on in the, we see in the book of Matthew. He wanted to prepare them. Much of the first part of Matthew, Jesus has been focusing his ministry on the crowds, but basically the last half of Matthew, Jesus is focusing his attention on the twelve, and particularly the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And then in verse 14, we see Jesus' adaptability and love. He wants to be alone with his followers, yet (laughs) uh, when he actually gets to Bethsaida and he comes up on shore, he finds that's not the case. So when he disembarks, he sees this great crowd of people. I don't know about you, but you're probably like me. If, if you were in, in Jesus' sandals, you'd probably be rather annoyed to try to get away from people and, and be alone and, and uh, find yourself, you're not actually alone, you, you've got a huge crowd of people there with you. But Jesus was not annoyed. He had compassion for them, the Bible says. And so instead of actually being irritated... He actually healed. And in fact, apparently, he healed, he healed everybody who was, who was ill. That would have taken a great deal of time. In fact, if you read the companion passages to Matthew, it appears he, he spent many, many hours healing people. Well, as a result of that, Jesus ends up having this dialogue with the disciples, starting in verse 15. As a result of spending these hours healing people, dinner time had come and gone. Their stomachs were probably rumbling. The sun was obviously maybe starting to go down. The disciples drew attention to their isolated location. How how are these people going to get food? (laughs) Now, in the midst of that question, you can maybe read between the lines. Maybe maybe it was more of a selfish question, I don't know. And so they urged Jesus to send the people away to buy food. You know, if, if we send them away now, maybe they can actually go out into the highways and byways and go out into the towns around and villages and maybe actually be able to find some food. By the way, that was not an unreasonable request at all. However, Jesus knew there was a food source that was available. Matthew doesn't say it, but one of the companion passages said that Andrew ends up finding this boy in the crowd who has five loaves and two fish. And so Andrew, the the Apostle Andrew, brings the boy to Jesus. Now, these weren't big loaves. They weren't big fish. Remember, this is just a little boy. These were not modern loaves that could be sliced up for many people. (laughs) You know, these weren't, these weren't, this wasn't a huge marlin that the boy's carrying around that would feed, you know, hundreds of people. Just little fish. These were small little loaves, the size of a bun, so that the you know just, it was basically a boy's lunch. It was for him and probably him alone. His mother probably fixed this for him. He wanted to go out and hear Jesus. So please don't think of some some huge 
you know, caterer bringing some huge amount of food. That's not the case. But this, this crowd obviously needed a recipe that, as we see here, that would feed 5,000 men. And notice Matthew doesn't leave it at that. He says there were also women and children there. Now, there's been a lot of conjecture on how many people is that. Uh, <clears throat> so if you have a man and his wife, 5,000 men plus, I'm assuming not all of them had their wives there, but if they did, then you'd have 10,000 people, right? And you start multiplying that. You know, back then, they had large families. Largest number I saw was there could have been up to 25,000 people there to hear Jesus, to be healed. We don't know exactly how many there were. That's not the important point of the lesson. The point is there was, there was a vast multitude of people, a large crowd, way more than enough for five little buns and two small fish. So how can they provide for that many people? Well, and in case you don't get the point, John chapter 6 notes they said it would take 200 days of wages or two-thirds of a year's wages to purchase enough food to feed that many people. In case you don't know what a denarii is, a de- John mentions a denarii. A denarii was a day's wage for a Roman soldier. And we're talking 200 denarii. 200 days' wages to feed that many people enough food just to have a snack. Well, at this point, the disciples, they exhausted their meager ideas and resources. You remember Jesus, Jesus tells them, you do it. In fact, it is actually a double emphasis in the Greek language. You, you do it. You find something to feed these people. Well, they can't find anything. Except Andrew ends up finding a little boy with five loaves and two fish. And so now it's time for Jesus to act. Obviously, Andrew and all the disciples know this is not enough to feed this many people. And you, you can see the disciples are involved here, but they're passive. And so the message is clear. One of the things Jesus wants to do is he, he wants the disciples actively involved. He has a lesson to teach them, among, as well as even us today, that none of us can accomplish anything of consequence in our own strength. We can't do it. Just as the disciples couldn't do it, you and I can't do it. One of the lessons we need to learn from this is that Jesus alone is sovereign. He's the one who who has all authority in heaven and earth. So what does Jesus do? Well, he takes control by actually commanding the crowd to sit down on the grass. It's a command in the Greek language there. And then he thanks God for the miracle that is about to happen. (laughs) Imagine yourself in that situation. The Bible says that Jesus said a blessing here. Now, don't, now don't, don't, don't think of a blessing as what you might do when you sit down to have a meal. You know, uh, you know some, people, some people bless the food. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not blessing the food. He's, he's actually thanking God for the food that is going to be provided. In fact, the normal prayer for a Jew went something like this. I found this in one of their manuscripts. It's on the screen here. Uh, this was a typical prayer of a Jew. Blessed are you, O Lord, God, uh, o Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So maybe Jesus would have done something like that. So he's, he's blessing, he, he's, he's actually thanking God for what God is going to provide for this vast multitude of people. 
Well, then we see this feeding miracle starting in verse 19. So what does Jesus do? After, after thanking God for the food that's going to be provided, he, he breaks the bread and the fish. He distributed the, these pieces to his disciples. Now, we don't know exactly how Jesus did this miracle. Matthew doesn't go into great detail on, on exactly how it happened. So obviously, that's not the most important part of the miracle. But Matthew does tell us the results. Amazing results. Did you notice it, the Bible specifically says, and Matthew is focusing in on, on, on one particular result. It says they all ate, all, you know, how many thousands of them, all of them ate. And the Bible, notice Matthew says, not only did they eat, they didn't just get one little, you know, little bite. It says they were satisfied. Matthew says they were satisfied. This verse is just filled with completeness. So we're not talking about, you know, one little teaser that that goes on your tongue and you're like, oh man, it would be nice to have more of that. No. Total completeness. Jesus doesn't do half things. He, He doesn't do anything halfway here. In fact, he provided more than was needed, didn't he? In case you missed the point, there were 12 baskets full that were left over. The 12 baskets, of course, indicating the abundance of the provision. So everybody eats. They're satisfied. They're filled up. They're no longer hungry. And then when, when they're all done eating, there's even leftovers. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? And all that from five little buns and two small fish. There was so much bounty, Jesus had to tell the disciples, just gather up the scraps in the baskets. Notice there's 12. I don't know if there's any significance to the 12, but there were 12 disciples. So I'm apparently each one was gathering up. And, and, and again, Jesus is getting them involved in this miracle. He's involving his men in mediating the miracle to the people. In other words, what I'm saying is this, Jesus is training his 12 He's preparing them for the mission ahead. Well, how can we apply this? What application can we make? Number one, believe that Jesus Christ is sovereign. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is sovereign? And by sovereign, I mean he's he's in total control. He, He reigns supreme over all of his creation. He's in control. The Bible says, as a member of the Godhead, Jesus created this world. He is the creator. Read Colossians 1, for example. But he's not only the creator. Hebrews says he's also the sustainer, and he's the one who controls it. He he holds it all together. Therefore, he asks the disciples here to realize this reality and to depend wholly on him. Well, as for us, we, we also need to entrust ourselves to his omnipotent and omnipresent presence in our lives. And by omnipotent, I mean that he's all-powerful. By omnipresent, he means that he's, he's all-present. He can do anything he wants within, that's within his nature, of course. He is everywhere. Why? Because Jesus Christ is sovereign. And we need to believe that. It'll make all the difference in your life, too, by the way, when you do actually believe that. Anyway, number two, Jesus will provide for your needs. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is 
providing for your needs. Presently speaking, do you actually believe that? I hope you believe that now and in the future he will continue to do so. Now, how do I know Jesus will provide for your needs? Well, well, number one, Jesus is compassionate. <laughs> Many Bible scholars, by the way, take uh, messianic provision to, ma- to be the, major, the, the single major theme of this event. I'm not going to argue for or against that. However, it did take the disciples a long time to learn this truth. Uh, they, they, they seemed to get it at, at one point, but later on, even in chapter 15, we're going to find out that Jesus is rebuking them for their lack of faith. And as, you know, at one point in our life, we might have faith, and then, you know, the next day we may not. We're, we're like the disciples, aren't we? They did not get it until after Pentecost, apparently. And so it's a, a lesson they had to continually learn, and, and so do we, that Jesus provides for our needs. It doesn't matter whether we're in need or we have plenty. This is something we're always going to struggle with. The reality is we need to know that the Lord is in charge. Number three, God is sovereign over the present, even though it may not seem like it. You ever been in that state? You say, I believe in God's sovereignty, and then, and then you find yourself in a situation where there's a little bit of doubt. You know, it might, it might be a situation like Job. Well, maybe not exactly like Job. You know, Job asked why a lot of times. You might find yourself in a very difficult situation. You're, you're troubled by something, and there might be that, that twinge of doubt. Well, don't let circumstances govern what you believe about God. God is sovereign over the present, even though it doesn't seem like it. The disciples got discouraged because it didn't seem like God was in control of the present. By the way, that often happens to us when we're in the midst of things. What we learn from the Bible is Jesus is the great prophet. He's also the Messiah who's going to bring history to a close. So, in the text... There's three major symbols that are actually intertwining. In in the midst of my study, I found this quite fascinating. Number one, there is Jesus, the new Moses, who's going to give us the hidden manna. He is the bread of life, if you will. Second, Jesus is the great prophet who multiplies the bread in a similar way that Elijah did in the Old Testament. Third, Jesus is the Messiah who will enable us to participate in the Messianic banquet that is yet to come marriage supper of the lamb so here's the point jesus is prophet priest and king jesus has control of the past jesus has control of the future and jesus is already in control of the present your present all three at the same time number four god's power is available to the church This story is a discipleship story as well as a miracle story. Uh, More than any uh, other miracle, the disciples are used in in every aspect of this miracle. Jesus wanted them to be involved. So Jesus uh, wants them first to realize, hey, I'm the one. I'm going to take care of you. He wanted them to understand that they can mediate his power to the world. They needed to know that when Jesus was gone, didn't they? Read the book of Acts. Jesus is no longer there. 
What were they going to trust in? Well, how did they do it? You say, how, how did they mediate Christ's power to the world? Well, just, you know, did they actually learn their lesson or not? Well, the answer is yes. Read the book of Acts. Some have called the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles. Excuse me. Robert, would you turn that switch off up there, please? There's a little switch. That little, little no, no, hold on, not that one. The one to your left. That little switch on the wall, just would you flick that, please? Thank you. So, read the book of Acts. The book of Acts is sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. I don't think that's the most appropriate name, but we see Jesus Christ working. You did what I want, thank you. <laughs> it turns that globe off up there. So anyway, it's, it's the work of, of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit working amongst the Apostles. So yes, God's power is available to the church. Well, our next miracle takes place starting in verse 22, and we see that King Jesus has authority over nature. King Jesus has authority over nature. By the way, there is no such thing as mother nature. And I hope as a Christian you would never use that term. There is Lord of nature, and his name's Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 22, please. Uh, let's start in verse 21. Uh, no, sorry, verse, I'm looking at the wrong page. Verse 22. Immediately, the word immediately is joining this miracle with the previous one. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart! It is I! Do not be afraid! And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So we see here that Jesus Christ is Lord of creation. He is Lord over nature. We see here that Jesus takes sovereign control. Number one, he, he dismisses the crowd. And then he actually forces the disciples to get into the boat and go across the sea. In the Greek language there, uh, the word made is actually a command. Jesus commanded his disciples to get in the boat and go. He wanted to be left alone. Well, that's one of the reasons anyway. So why, why, did, why did he do this? Why did he dismiss the crowds? Command his disciples to get in the boat and go across the sea? Number one, is because he wants the disciples to be tested in terms of the previous miracle we just looked at. So the question is, 
Are they, the disciples, actually going to entrust themselves entirely to God's provision? Another reason for Jesus to be by himself is actually given in John chapter 6. The people conclude that Jesus is a prophet. And they actually want to try to force Jesus uh, to, to become their king. Well, that's not what Jesus wants. That's not why Jesus came. So Jesus actually withdraws from it. He actually, he actually gets rid of the crowd. He did not want to be king at that time because it, it was not the right time. That was not his purpose in coming. Not at least in his first coming. He will in his second coming. Verse 23 gives what is probably the major reason for dismissing everyone. Jesus wanted private time with God the Father. He, he wanted to use this solitude for having some good conversation with God the Father, His Father. We see He, he goes up on the hillside. By the way, if you know anything about that area there on the north uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee, it's it's pretty inhospitable place, really. Even today, there's not hardly anybody you'll see around that area. There's no roads up on the hillside there. And so Jesus goes up there so he can get alone and be in solitude. Well, meanwhile, the disciples were having a difficult time, <laughs> weren't they, as you read about? They're trying to make this approximately, it was, by the way, approximately a five-mile journey or seven- to eight-kilometer journey across that northern tip of the lake from Bethsaida to Gennesaret. You'll see uh, uh, someone's, uh, no, Nick, the first one there. Uh, that's, uh, that's approximately what the boat may have looked like. That's a typical boat there on the Sea of Galilee. Now, why, why is this? Well, the Bible says they're, they're fighting this strong headwind. That's one reason why they're having a difficult time. And so it, it implies they were, they were having to row. They were, they were also being beaten by the big waves, the Bible says, so on, in other words, they're not, this is not a good situation. And many of these guys are trained fishermen, spend a lot of their life out there on the Sea of Galilee. They know, they know what the Sea of Galilee is like. The Sea of Galilee is, is, is situated in a, in a situation, the topography there is the wind often will, will come roaring over the hills down into that low spot there and, and just stir up the waves very, very quickly. And so they found themselves in a bad situation very quickly, and it's a scary situation as well. Verse 25 says that after Jesus finished praying, by the way, did you notice he finished at 3 o'clock in the morning? The fourth watch? They had, they had four watches in the night, in a 12-hour period, the Romans did. And he's finishing at that fourth watch, 3 a.m., and he decides it was time to catch up with the disciples, and he decides he's going to walk across the, the water to the disciples. I don't know about you, but I find this story amazing. I find it awesome. I mean, what, why do I say I find it amazing and awesome? Well, because there's a series of miracles going on here. In case you didn't notice, uh, number one, Jesus actually sees the disciples' plight, and he's three miles, at least three miles away, and, and he's able to see what's going on in the midst of this raging storm. And by the way, it's dark as well, because it's 3 a.m. So obviously Jesus knew... They're not on shore yet, although time-wise, they should have already made it to shore. But Jesus knows they're still out on the lake, because he's the one who's in control of nature. He's in control of the weather. He brought the weather. He brought the waves and the headwind. 
So Jesus is able to see what's going on, despite the fact there's a storm and, and it's dark. Number two, the other miracle we see here, Jesus walks right to the disciples out on this huge lake. So just picture, just picture this for a moment. Here's Jesus calmly strolling along. And these weren't little ways, by the way. Some have said they may have been, you know, up to three, four meters high. Here's Jesus stepping from, I don't know, if he's stepping on the top of each wave, I don't know. But that'd be, that'd be awesome to behold, wouldn't it? Here's Jesus just calmly walking on the waves. You know, you know I don't know, 150-kilometer winds, you know, huge, massive waves. He's going out to meet the disciples. He knows exactly where they're at. He knew exactly where the boat was. He knew exactly where the disciples were. What does this show you, by the way? This shows you that Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. By the way, if you've ever used a GPS system, I have one. I have a GPS system. I wouldn't be able to do that even with a GPS system. A global positioning system wouldn't even be able to do that. Jesus didn't need one because he sees everything. The other amazing thing is, later on, it's, we read, it says that Jesus actually calms the storm. As soon as he gets in the boat, the waves go, the wind stops. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, though, we need to understand the disciples had no reason to expect Jesus to come across the water. They'd never heard of any miracle like that happening before. They had no reason to believe such a thing could actually be done. So naturally, when they see Jesus, did you notice they were terrified? They're shaking in their sandals. The knees are knocking. The only explanation that made sense to what they were actually seeing is that they're seeing a ghost. Jesus has to be a ghost. By the way, the, the Greek word is, is a phantom. We, we get our English word phantom. So they, they think they're seeing a ghost, a phantom. They couldn't imagine anyone or anything with any physical form walking across the water, so that's why they said it's a ghost. So instead of faith, what are they showing here? The disciples feel only fear and terror. So what does Jesus do? He knows they're, they're, they're fearful, they have terror. What does he do? Well, if you look at verse 27, Jesus spoke three statements of comfort and encouragement to them. In other words, he calms their fears, he gives his followers courage. I want to focus on the middle statement you see in verse 27 there. Notice Jesus in verse 27 says, It is I. In other words, by that simple phrase, it is I, Jesus is saying, number one, I'm not a ghost. (laughs) And literally he's saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. I am Lord of the Old Testament. These words, by the way, are the... The sacred I am, the sacred tetragrammaton that you see in, in Exodus chapter 3 where God was speaking to Moses from the burning bush. You remember that? The burning bush, Moses sees it and he's like, whoa, this bush is not being burned up even though it's on fire. Moses walks up and God speaks to him. Moses falls on his face. Moses is wondering in what authority do I go and speak to the Hebrews and Moses. And God says, I am. That's the authority. I am the self-existent one. I am Yahweh. You go in my name, in my power. Jesus is using that, that sacred I am statement that God said to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. 
So it's meant to function as a divine self-authentification formula, if you will. In other words, I'm saying this, in case you're missing the point, Jesus is saying he's God. (laughs) He is Yahweh. He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Well, Peter's statement, Peter had an interesting statement, didn't he? Peter's statement shows he has a small amount of faith, but obviously he doesn't have complete understanding yet. Peter has a great deal of bravery, though, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, he, he's, he's asking Jesus to, to, to invite him to come to him on the water. Obviously, he doesn't have a lot of wisdom yet. Peter's statement in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, may sound like doubt in the English language, but in reality, it's actually a condition of fact. When Jesus says, Lord, if it is you, he's saying, Lord, since it is you, that's literally what he's saying, since you are Lord over creation, tell me to participate in your miraculous power. That's, that's literally what Peter's saying. Now, why did Peter say that? Well, we can't know exactly why. But at least he got his priorities right. Now, why did Peter say that? Well, again, I don't know why, but he he knows only that Jesus has the power to enable him to walk on water. Jesus is the one who can walk in water, then he can enable me to do so as well. So Peter's learning his lessons from Jesus himself. And the lesson is this, that Jesus is a powerful provider who can enable his followers to perform miracles. He is the Jehovah Jireh the God who will provide. So Jesus, what does he do? He says, come, come. What does Peter do? Does he just sit there? You know, are you, did I hear come? No, I'm not sure I heard that. He just sits in the boat, right? No, he didn't do that. Peter got out of the boat, walks on water, and came to Jesus. What an amazing act of faith. A great act of faith, although a a very brief one. You'll see a picture here of maybe something of what it would have liked, of what it would have looked like. Would you get out of the boat? I wouldn't. So what caused Peter to sink anyway? Well, look at verse 30. What caused Peter to sink? Did you notice in verse 30 what it says? Does Scripture say that Peter saw the Loch Ness Monster? And that made him sink? Is that what happened? No. Is it, oh, I know, Peter saw this huge wave that was about to hit him, and as a result of that, he started doubting. Is that what it says? No. What, what, what caused Peter to doubt? Why did he sink? It says he saw the wind. I don't know about you, about you but I find it a bit, a little strange. I don't know, I, I'm... Anyway, but that's what the Bible says. He saw the wind, and as a result of that, he starts sinking. So instead of looking to Jesus, what is he doing? What is he doing? He's looking around at his circumstances. He's looking at the situation. He's thinking, man, that wind is powerful, and it's making huge waves. So, Peter's brief encounter with faith ended once he felt the fury of the storm. By the way, isn't that easy to do? You and I do it all the time, don't we? We do it all the time. We we, we feel the fury of the storms of life hitting us, and 
and we easily get distracted. We take our eyes off the author and finisher of our faith, and we look at the circumstances of our life, and we doubt, just as Peter did. So it's easy for us to focus on Peter's failure here. Very easy for us to start pointing fingers at, at Peter, but when, in fact, we need to recognize there was an initial act of faith that did lead him to do something that was impossible, at least for somebody who wasn't God. But here in this circumstance, he's under the, the master's guidance, if you will, and so he's able to do what his master tells him to do. Well, how did Peter respond when he started sinking into this angry sea? He, he sees this great wind. Well, Peter called out with the most basic expression of faith that's possible. What a wonderful prayer. Did you notice what he said? He only says three words. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And you know what? The Lord loves that kind of a prayer. It's, and you say, well, well, okay. Well, why does he love that kind of a prayer? Lord, save me. Well, it's a sign that that kind of a person who's saying that has come to the end of their self-reliance. They realize there's nowhere else to turn to except to the Lord. And God loves those kind of cries and prayers. That's exactly where he wants us all to be. So how does Jesus answer Peter's cry? How does he answer Peter's cry? Does he let Peter drown? You idiot. You looked at the wind. You know, so, pfft, goodbye. Does he do that? You know, we, we might be tempted to do that, right, in our flesh. Have a fleshly response, but no, that's not what Jesus does. Even though Peter deserves to drown, that's not what Jesus does. He grabs Peter's hand and rescues him from the watery grave. And then Jesus does something interesting. He actually chastises Peter's doubt. The issue here, by the way, was not the amount of Peter's faith. He wasn't chastising Peter because he didn't have some huge amount of faith. No, that's not the point. The reality is, the reality is even the smallest amount of faith, if it's in the right object, is effective. So the problem was that his faith was replaced with doubt. He started looking at other things, and the faith is replaced with doubt. That's why he sank. And that's why Jesus was chastising him. Peter had a divided mind, if you will. His loyalty was divided. It was split between God and this world. And by the way, that never works. That never works. God wants total loyalty, attention, worship, and love focused on him. Never divide your attention. Well, this real event ends with, and they lived happily ever after, right? Is that how it ends? You know those stories. And they walk off into the sunset, or they're riding on the horses going off in the sunset, and they lived happily ever after, right? You know those stories? Is that how this one ends? Well, not quite. Verse 32 says that when Peter and Jesus got in the boat, Jesus stopped the wind. By the way, notice Jesus doesn't, you know, he's not saying all sorts of incantations and waving his arms. and You don't see any of that sort of stuff, right? None of it. All he does is step into the boat, and so-called Mother Nature, the Lord of creation, calms the storm. He controls nature with his mind. Well, as you can imagine, these miracles brought the disciples to a greater understanding of Jesus and who he is. Notice their response. Notice the disciples' response. What did they do? Did they, did they start uh, 
doing cannonballs in the water or playing a game, start rowing. Yeah, there's a number of things we could come up with. Did, did they do any of those things? No. It says they worshipped King Jesus. That was their immediate response to what they saw. This was, by the way, it was, this is far more than this, a simple respect that, that students should have for their teachers. The word here implies awe and adoration. Their confession was literally, you are the Son of God. And by, by the way, by using that statement, you are the Son of God, for them to call Jesus Son of God meant they were calling him the Yahweh of the Old Testament, Lord. In other words, they're proclaiming Jesus is God. He's deity. Well, there's a few more verses in our passage here to end the chapter 14. Look at verse 34. We see here that King Jesus has authority over the human body. Look at verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, When the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as as touched it were made well. So Jesus heals the sick, the ill, the disease. What does that show you? That King Jesus has authority over your human body. Well, as we read, Jesus and his disciples, they, they end up completing their journey. They made it to the western side of the northwest side of the lake. Maybe not exactly where they intended, uh, they originally intended to go, but they go to Gennesaret, which is near Capernaum. It's in Jewish territory. So as soon as the people there realized uh, that Jesus was now there, the word quickly spread like wildfire, and, and so they're all, they're all coming out to meet Jesus. Jesus is, again, quickly overwhelmed with, with sickness, people who want to be healed by him. Well, apparently these people had the same kind of faith that we read about earlier in Matthew chapter 9. Remember the, the woman who was bleeding? Uh, she had enough faith that if she could just touch uh, the, the, the end of Jesus' robe, the outer part of his garment, that, that she would be healed. This touch brought healing to all who touched him, the Bible says. And so this event, again, clearly shows something about Jesus. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus also has the authority of the Messiah King, because he is Messiah King. Jesus had great love for these common people. We're going to find later on, Jesus is very different from the religious leaders, particularly those like the Sadducees and Pharisees, who had nothing, they didn't want anything to do with common people, certainly wouldn't let sinners touch them. Jesus has compassion. He plays no favorites and cares deeply for every person he encounters. Well, let's quickly make some application, and we'll be done today. Number one, Jesus is Lord of the whole creation. Not just part of it. He's, he's Lord of all of creation, the whole thing. He's the Son of God, the Bible says, who has authority. And, and by the way, he has the authority of Yahweh. He has authority over the wind and waves, as we saw here. And so this is Jesus the new Moses, the greater prophet. And he's not just acting for God. He, he is rather the God who is acting on his own authority here. And he's using it to conquer nature and rescue his people. And so you need to understand, Jesus is not just an agent of God, but he himself actually contains the authority and the power of God. It's, it is within him. He doesn't, he's not 
acting on God's behalf here. So he's Lord of the whole creation. Number two, faith is needed in times of trial and trouble. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Jesus taught his disciples to rely on his merciful provision in the feeding scene there. But in the, this, this miracle where Jesus calms the storm, saves Peter, he is purposely leading them into a time of testing. Ultimately, they fail the test, although the Bible does say there is partial um, success, if you will, because Jesus does say they had little faith. But isn't that like us? Often we, we go through so-called storms of our life. God takes us through difficult times of trial and suffering. Well, they're all ordained of God, by the way. God is using those things in his life for two reasons. For his glory and your good. But never lose sight of the fact that he reigns supreme, even in the midst when it, it appears he's absent in your life. Number three. Victory comes through depending totally on Christ. When Peter asked to walk on the water, that was, that was exactly the response that Jesus wished for. As long as Peter focused on Jesus, what was he able to do? He's able to walk on water just like Jesus. However, when he turns to consider his earthly situation, he's looking at the wind and the waves and stuff going on around him. He failed and he began to sink. But just like Peter, your victory over sin and temptation is completely dependent on Christ. Peter had to rely on Christ. Without him, he could not have even gotten out of the boat, and he would have died. So, let me ask you, have you ever failed, just like Peter? Well, then let Peter be an example to you. He's, he's the model disciple, even in our failures. I don't know about you, I'm often encouraged by Peter. Peter's often failing. Nevertheless, God used him. He, he's a human figure. We, we see him. He, he's, he's growing, but he's struggling, isn't he? he? He's failing. He's growing. He's failing. He's growing. He's growing in his awareness of Christ here. He has little faith, but he doubts. He has little faith, but he doubts. He, but that's just like us. And as a result of that, you know what? I'm, I'm encouraged. God gives us a wonderful example in Scripture of, of a man who wasn't perfect just like you, at times you have little faith, at times you doubt. But always remember, the victory comes through depending totally on Christ. Number four, last of all, Jesus calms your fear and gives you understanding. You want your fear taken care of? You want understanding? Then you've got to look to Christ. Whenever you are overwhelmed by your external struggles, Jesus is the one who is going to soothe your anxious heart. Read Matthew chapter 6. Jesus commands us six times, do not worry, do not be anxious. He tells us to look at his creation, look to him. He's the one who can remove your worries, he can turn your fear to joy, he's the one who can turn your defeat to victory. Well, out of your struggle, you know what's going to happen? You're, you're actually going to gain a deeper understanding of who Christ is and what he's doing just as Peter did. That's one of the beauties of, 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 of uh, going through temptation and trials. We can actually learn from them. Out of the disciples' initial defeat, they were guided by Jesus into a new awareness of him. And in fact, 
it, it, it made such a huge impact on them. Did you notice what they called Jesus? You are the Son of God. You are Yahweh. You are God. God was teaching them something through that. Praise God for His grace. So my friend, let me tell you this. Jesus has been caring for you. Jesus is caring for you, and Jesus will care for you. Even if you haven't committed your life to Him yet, Jesus is caring for you. For example, the very friends you have, at least the good ones, Jesus has given those to you. The health you possess, the possessions you own, the job, God's given that to you. Whatever you have in life, whatever you have in life, your body, your possessions, God's money, whatever it is, He's given it to you. So, let me tell you this, my friend. Please do not perish in your sins. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Commit yourself to Jesus. Say what Peter said. What did he say? Lord, save me. And then cry out with the disciples as well. Is what, what they said. Truly, you are the Son of God. And that's, you know what, my friend? That is how a person will pass from death to life. That's how a person passes from darkness to light. That's how a person will pass from spiritual death to eternal life. You have to acknowledge who Jesus is. Believe that He lived the perfect life that you should have lived, but you have not lived. He's holy. You're not. And then believe that Jesus, not only is He perfect, but He died the perfect death that you deserve to die. Again, you cannot do, but He arose again three days later. Conquering death, paying the penalty for sin. He justifies. The Bible says those whom he justifies, he will ultimately glorify. And so that's how a person will pass from spiritual death to life. And so, my friends, may may we pray together that God would give us eyes to see Jesus.